Okay, here we are with uh, Gender Trouble, and this week we have a very exciting program again, and Shane Patrick has come to town from Tucson and is going to talk about her experiences beginning to transition at the age of 75. And there's a lot of reasons why that could happen, but I'm going to let uh, Shane talk about it and talk about her life. She's lived a life as a professional actor. She worked with Billie Jean King, the famous tennis player, and who beat the pants off of Bobby Riggs, which we were also <laughs> excited about that, and a dancer for many years. And so can you tell us what... After an exciting life, doing many, many things, you ended up in Tucson after having lived all over the country, and now you're, at the age of 75, you're going to become Mrs. Shane Patrick, or Miss Shane Patrick, so can you you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, I am married, so it'll be Mrs. Okay. (laughs) I like that. Right. Well, I, I am at 75 just now transitioning, and it's a, it's a whole new ball game for me. It's something that I have thought about my entire life. I've struggled with, I've dealt with, I've ignored, I've hidden from. And now at 75, I am out of the corporate world. I am out of my profession. And it's just me, and I am bound and determined to put my mind and my body in alignment before I die. So I'm starting that now. I like to think of myself as a transition in progress because I'm just starting. And it is not something you do overnight. You know, I'm looking at probably a good two years before I really am in a place where I feel I'm, I'm completely transitioned. Two years of electrolysis, for one thing. Just oh, my goodness. Yeah. Rid of Very painful. And, <laughs> yeah. Now, they are doing, uh, 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 what do they call it? electrolysis, not electrolysis. A uh, laser. Laser treatments now, which is much quicker. But I understand quite painful, and I haven't quite looked into that yet. So that's my next step. I did start electrolysis, and... and uh, I, I, when I found out it was going to take two years, I just kind of like spaced out on that and said, this is something, something else must be better than this. So I'll look into it's that It's not next an time. easy thing, and it's sort of a rite of passage. I think every trans woman goes through that. The smart ones, they wait, uh, do their electrolysis before they transition so they don't have a beard shadow. Because to do electrolysis, uh, you have to let your beard grow out for like three days or four days. That means here they are fully presenting as a woman, but then they have, you know, a four-day growth. It's very difficult. Yeah, I find myself, you know, living three days as a man, getting electrolysis and going back to transitioning <laughs> to a woman. So it, it is, it's confusing and it's, it's just so time consuming. Yeah. So in your bio, you stated that you were aware that something was up at the age of four, that you felt that somehow you were assigned wrongly at birth. You got assigned as a boy and you felt like maybe there had been a mistake. At least you knew something was wrong. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know... To me, one of the things that is really interesting is out of all of the transgender men and women that I've talked to throughout my life, there's one thing in common with all of us, and that's that we knew in those first conscious memories that we were not what we were being told we were. And the problem is that there wasn't a word for it. There, there was no understanding of it. People didn't talk about it. You didn't hear the word transgender. There was nothing to go to to find out what was wrong. You just knew you weren't in alignment. You knew you were different. And that being different caused a lot of problems throughout childhood. You know, when I started grade school, it was just natural for me to gravitate to the girls' gym and play with the girls at recess because I didn't appreciate the boys' noisiness and overplaying with their balls and everything. I wanted to be over with the girls playing hopscotch and skip rope and jacks. Mm -hmm. 
And that was just a natural place for me to be. Yeah, I was a mean jack player. I mean, I could do my <laughs> double bouncies and everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll never forget the day I got to Tenzies. <laughs> but even that was, was, was passable for me because I just knew I, I belonged there. But when I started middle school, that was when trouble really started. That was when the bullying started. That's when you were set aside from the other kids and made fun of and picked on and they'd knock you down in the hallways or they'd call you names or make life just generally miserable for you. Junior high school was not a fun time for me. Kids wanted to always pick fights with me. I, I can remember at one time one of the boys in school came over and stood on my front yard yelling at me to come out so he could beat me up. And I didn't even know this kid. I'd never met him in my life. Wow. And I couldn't yeah. understand that. But I was, again, leaning to the feminine side. I had no desire to fight anybody. Yeah. Now, about two weeks after that happened, because I didn't go out that day, but a couple of weeks later, I ran into him when I came out of a movie theater one night, and he came up and said he was going to punch me in the face. And I remember once my grandfather had said, if you're ever going to be in a fight, throw the first punch. <laughs> so I hauled off and I slugged him right in the nose, and he backed down and he never bothered me again. So that was the first time I found that I had power. Yeah. <laughs> And a lot of bullies are that way. They're bullies because they're bullies against the people that are, you know, that aren't going to fight back. They're bullies against those that are small. They're they're uh, thin. They're geeky. They're they're not the athletic type. And those are the ones that get picked on because it's safe to do so. They're not going to hit back. Right. So it tells me that most bullies are are pretty cowardly. It's kind of a cowardly thing anyway to beat up on somebody that can't defend themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how just as a society we always have to pick on someone who's yes. less than what we think we are. Yeah, right. it still goes on. And uh, bullying is, is something that even though there's a lot of talk about safe spaces and a lot of talk about being conscious of bullying and and having no tolerance zones in high school and things, um, bullying seems to be just going on. Uh, you know, it's sort of people are more careful about not getting caught, but it's still going on like it always has been. And, yeah. mm -hmm. which and tells now you me have it online, too. Which tells me there's something deeply wrong with our society that condones such a thing mm. or, or raises boys that they're so frightened that they need to beat up on what's different. Well, I grew up in a very abusive house, too. My father was very abusive, uh, both physically and emotionally. Um, so I grew up being afraid to speak up for myself. When I tried to do that, um, I would be accused of maybe lying about something, and I would be uh, beaten for that. So I, was, I learned not to tell the truth sometimes. I learned to try and second-guess people and tell them what they were, which to me only made me get further away from who I really was because I was getting lost in all the stories I had to tell in order to protect myself from being beaten. Yeah. It, was, it was not fun. When I w went into high school, I found the, the drama department, and that was, that was a good thing for me because I had studied dance from about eight years old, and I could couple that into the drama department and dance in school assemblies and things, which, again, just sort of made those bully kids uh, realize how effeminate I was. And... That didn't go over really big either. Mm. But we had a thing during our drama school that had a, a production numbers called hijinks every year. And they nominated the prettiest girls from each high school class. And that year, the boys in school voted me the prettiest girl in the sophomore class. Now, you know, I can kind of laugh about that now. And, and almost kind of go back and say, well, you know, they were they really had it right. Yeah, they, <laughs> really right. they, they didn't right. know it, but they had it right. <laughs> but at that time, it was humiliating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went into yes. a horrible depression, and I didn't go to school for a couple of days. 
Yeah, well, let's clarify, because you're in school in the 40s and 50s. Right. And things were a lot different then. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember our playground had... Uh, they had a hall in the playground, and, and they were teaching tap dance. And I wanted to do it so bad, and I think it was like, I don't know, I think it was seven, eight years old or something like that, and I was the only boy out of like 30 girls taking tap dance. Well, when I walked out, that was sort of like, <laughs> so I, I, I was, every boy around just started calling me names and teasing me, and, and I didn't go back. And it was very sad because I really wanted to tap dance with everybody else. And uh, it's sort of, we're always on the, um, like I was the only boy that took typing. <laughs> oh my gosh! No boys didn't take typing. They didn't. They didn't do those things. And so you found yourself in the same position because mm. we're talking about fifties was the time of June Cleaver and you know and all oh, that. Oh yes, and, uh, yes, yes. You so. did your housework in high heels and and a string of pearls <laughs> and nothing else. <laughs> no, but, but that's interesting because when I was in in middle school, I was taking sewing classes and art classes and and uh, cooking classes, and I was the only boy in the cooking class or, or yeah. in the sewing class. And, <laughs> but those are things. Well, but but I made all my own clothes when I was in middle school too. Which, of course, only well, just gave them more fuel to yeah, tease me. You uh, know. So let's go back. So when Christine Jorgensen made this huge splash in the 50s, right? Mm -hmm. So were you aware of it? I remember sitting at the kitchen table with my mother and the neighbor lady, and they were having a little coffee clutch and reading the current issue of Confidential Magazine. <laughs> and, of course, that was the front page of Christine Jorgensen getting off of an airplane yeah. after having a sex change in Denmark. And that was the first time I'd ever heard anything related to that being able to be done. You know, prior to that, though, I can remember uh, when I was maybe 10, 11 years old, I had thoroughly convinced myself that when I went through puberty, I would grow breast and then everything would be okay. Uh, wow. But yeah. that didn't happen, of course. And so yeah. I just went back to figuring, well, I must be a boy. Yeah. You know, I'll have to deal with this. Well, for me, when all the news came out about Christine Jorgensen, I didn't want to know about it. I hid from it. Oh I didn't gosh. want to read anything. It just was too close, too, like... It was scary because I knew that could be me, and I was spending all my energy trying to be a normal guy. You know, I wanted to be normal like everybody else, and here this comes out, and it just scared me to death. Well, I can remember that day that they were reading the Confidential magazine. I can remember within myself knowing that I couldn't appear to be too interested in this topic. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I knew I couldn't let that be seen on my face, but inside, it was a ray of hope. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so, but you also left home at the age of 16. I did. Um, after I was voted the prettiest girl in the sophomore class, and I went into a horrible depression, I was so humiliated at school. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to stop for a break, so let's come back to that, okay? okay. And this is Gender Trouble, and we're going to pause here for a break. Okay, we're back here with Gender Trouble, and we're talking with Shane Patrick from Tucson. And Shane is 75 years old and has just begun to transition, and she's telling us why it took so long to make that decision. And though we have been hearing that she has been struggling with gender identity her whole life, so we're talking about what are the factors that causes people like myself to be a late transitioner, we, we call ourselves, and, and what happened that we kept putting it off and putting it off. And so we're kind of going into the issue of what does society do that makes us afraid to be who we are. And so we're talking with uh, Shane now about at the age of 16, Shane ran away from an abusive family and began then to grow as a person and find himself in a lot of ways. So 
Shane, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, um, I was saying that when I was voted the prettiest girl in the sophomore class, I was so humiliated and so embarrassed to go back to school that I didn't go for a couple of days. And finally, the school called my home to find out where I was. So my parents found out I'd been skipping school. And I was in a horrible, depressive state. And I attempted suicide one night. And my parents' answer to that was to ship me out of town to an aunt to live with someone in another city and finish my school year. But when I finished my junior year, or my sophomore year, excuse me, and I went back, my parents informed me I would have to go back to school in our hometown the following year. And I stuck it out for the first semester, and Christmas came, and New Year's came, and I knew I couldn't go back. It was just so miserable at school. And so when school started again in January after the Christmas break, I packed a little dance bag of clothes, and I walked out the front door one day. And instead of crossing the street towards the high school, I circled our house and walked downtown and hitchhiked out of town. And I hitchhiked to Portland, Oregon, where I got on an airplane and there I flew to Los Angeles, and that night I slept in the balcony of the Orpheum Theater in downtown L.A. Wow. Okay. And the next morning I boarded a Greyhound bus and went to New Orleans, Louisiana. And I could remember from my history classes that Jean Lafitte had a blacksmith shop in New Orleans, and I wanted to go see it. <laughs> so I found it one night on Bourbon Street down in the French Quarter, and I was standing out in front of it looking at it and realized that it had been turned into a gay bar. <laughs> and as I stood there, a very attractive young man approached me and asked me who I was and what I was doing because I, I was living on the streets. I, I had no place to live. And he took me in and mentored me, and he helped me, and he talked me into building up my confidence to go out and find a job. And I got a job for a small import-export company. And he mentored me, and he, he gave me money to buy clothes so I could go to work. And he allowed me to save my money. He gave me a place to sleep in his house. And one day he came to me, and he said, You know, the hardest thing about running away is learning when to stop running. Yeah, and advice. that was a light bulb for me because I realized that I had been running for two years, just spinning out of control. And so I got myself kind of together and I went back to Seattle and I enrolled in night school and finished my high school education. I went on to college. I got my degree in accounting. And after I got out of school... I went to work for Standard Oil, and I was with them for about a year, and they shipped me to Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, I was kind of in the fringes of the gay community a lot, and I was picking up, you know, more knowledge about uh, people and seeing drag shows, and, and I had done some drag shows in Seattle and, and uh, had known a lot of drag queens there. So that wasn't all so new to me. And I finally got up the courage to go to a doctor and tell him that I wanted to transition to a female. And after a very short and brief examination, he informed me that I would never be allowed to transition. Wow. Now, he was just lying and to you, me. Yeah, of course he was. And, and you were 26 at the time? I was 26 then, yeah. Yeah. And I, it, that just set me again into a really deep depression. And I, I ended up drinking very heavily and getting drugs. I ended up losing my job. And I was, I was just a mess for a couple of years. And, and I eventually had gone up to San Francisco, and I was living in San Francisco. And again, I was just kind of like eking out a living, doing little things here and there, and lots of drugs and lots of alcohol, and being very depressed, and again, another suicide attempt. And then I met a young man, and we decided that we wanted to have a relationship. And I told him that I could not live in San Francisco if we were going to have a relationship, so we moved down to the peninsula. And there was a small article in the newspaper that was advertising for an accountant for a sports-minded company. So I applied for it. I interviewed with the CEO. 
I got the job. I worked there for a couple of weeks until it dawned on me that King Enterprises that I was working for was the <laughs> corporate offices for Billie Jean King. And that was how I came to work for her. And I was the controller for her for several years there in San Mateo and in the Bay Area. And she came to me one day and she said, I, I can tell you're not really happy doing what you're doing. And I said, well, it's boring. You know, after you've done it for a year, you know everything. There's nothing new. It's just the same thing month after month. And so she says, well, you know, I need someone to travel with me and handle my public relations on the road. Would you do that? And I thought, oh, gee, travel, see the world, live with Billie Jean King. Gee, that sounds like a good thing. Well, I didn't realize this is a 24-7 job. You know, I was on call forever. Wow, so, but exciting. Uh, it was exciting, and it was different, and I got to see a lot of the world I would never have been able to see without that. I got an apartment in New York eventually after. When I first went back, I was living with Billie Jean in her apartment. And then I think Billie sort of decided that she wanted her privacy and I need to get my own apartment. So I did. And then I had my friend that I was living with in San Mateo come out. And he lived in New York with me. And, and so I traveled all over the world with Billie handling press on the road for her. And uh, then she stopped playing singles in 1978, so that was kind of the end of my job. And Billy was one of these people that gets people organized. And so she said, you know, what do you really want to do with your life? And I said, well, you know, I grew up a dancer. I wanted to be another Gene Kelly or Fred Astaire. I said, I just always wanted to be an actor. And she says, well, I'm going to do you the biggest favor of your life. I'm going to fire you. Now go be an actor. Wow. <laughs> and so I closed up my apartment in New York, went back to San Francisco, enrolled at the American Conservatory Theater where I studied. And I knew that in my heart I really always wanted to do film. So one day I came home from school and I said, guess what? We're moving to Los Angeles. And we moved to L.A. And long story short is I made a living for almost 30 years as a professional actor in the Los Angeles area. So well, I had a very uh -huh. interesting career there. I did television and stage and radio and uh, cartoon voices. I was actually the voice of the Pink Panther at one time. Wow. Which is very interesting because, you know, the Pink Panther does not talk. But he yawns, he sneezes, he moans, he groans. And so I did that. I was the man in the moon at the Epcot Center for Walt Disney. And I did, uh, you know, feature films and just about every soap opera that was done in Los Angeles at one time. Lots of sitcoms. And then I ended up doing a film down in Patagonia, Arizona, with Tom Selleck. And I fell in love with Arizona. And I thought, you know, I'm going to move to Arizona. So I bought some land and I was going to build a house down there. And we moved to Arizona. I was traveling back and forth between Phoenix and L.A. and continued my career there. But eventually we moved to Tucson, and I retired from acting. And all of a sudden I realized, gee, I can finally be me. Really? I can wow. finally do what I do. And so that was fairly recently, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I, I started really transitioning at 74, but just in October I turned 75. And when did you move to Tucson? We moved to Tucson 13 years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, you know, the things that really kind of came to light was when Caitlyn Jenner mm -hmm. transitioned and then this TV series I Am Jazz came about yeah. mm -hmm. and Transparent Parent. became a big hit. Yeah. And all of a sudden, transgender enlightened my mind. I, I had hidden from this for so many years mm -hmm. that I was totally uneducated about it. So I, I'm, like I say, I'm in, in the works here. I'm just starting this transition. I'm feeling my way through, and I don't know where it's going to take me. And I yeah. know it's a long haul, but... Well, what, a, what an exciting uh, past and background. And, and uh, so were you involved at all in the, the thing with uh, Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean? No, actually, I went that to... That happened afterwards. That happened yeah. just before I went to work for Billie Jean. Oh, I did. And yeah. uh, what, I think the big thing with Billie Jean was when she was sued by Marilyn Barnett in a palimony suit, you know, because they were 
they were having a relationship, a lesbian relationship together. Mm-hmm. And so I was all a part of that. And uh-huh. uh, I had, I had actually, I had stopped working for her at that time. And, and when that came up, I went back to work with her because she was going to Tokyo for a tournament. And she wanted me to be there to handle the press because she knew that the press was going to just be on her about this. And so we went to Tokyo. And the first night, we had one of the biggest press conferences that had ever happened in Tokyo for a sports event. And I got up and I said, Mrs. King, under the advice of counsel, is here to discuss tennis and cannot discuss litigation in the United States. And we hope that the Japanese press will honor those wishes. Well, the Japanese people, when you ask them to honor, they honor. So the only problem I ever had were the American press that were there because they would step across the line every chance they could get. Yeah, wow. That's kind of neat. That's very exciting. And so you ended up moving to uh, Tucson. And there, so you were there 13 years. But what was the real trigger? Just seeing, like you said, seeing the Caitlyn Jenner and and the... uh, Laverne Cox and people like that were beginning. I was reading about, you know, 2015 is sort of almost had become the year of the transgender and because uh, there's so many things. And, of course, it's sort of our 15 minutes of fame. I don't think it will always continue. And we're looking for the time when mm-hmm. transgender is just, you know, part of our, I guess, the social network that everybody is aware of. And... But right now, it's still sort of exotic, and everybody wants to talk about it. Yeah, that's true. You know, um, when I was living in Los Angeles, I wrote a play about my abusive childhood called No Place Like Home. And that was a time when child abuse was really kind of in vogue. All of a sudden, there were lots of films coming out about it. There were TV shows about it. And I toured across Canada for two years. So we're going to stop here, and then we'll come back. And I do want to talk about your play. Okay, we're back with Gender Trouble, and we're talking with Shane Patrick, who, if you've been listening, has lived a very exciting life, very interesting life. After 30 years of, which is a very difficult thing, to make a living in Hollywood as an actor in plays and film. and So in that genre, Shane wrote a play, which toured the country. It was a play about abuse. So, uh, Shane, can you tell us about that? Yes. um, I mentioned earlier that I grew up in a very abusive family. And uh, so I wrote a play about my childhood and what it was like growing up as an abused child. And the reason I did that is that I wanted to raise money for organizations that deal with abused children. And so we did that. And I toured two years across Canada and the United States with it. I played for a year in Los Angeles. It was awarded the most outstanding new play of 1986. And it also won the Critics' Choice Award for Los Angeles, a one-man show, two and a half hours oh, right. on stage, yeah. night after night. And so it was it was a very rewarding experience. But the thing is, is that child abuse was kind of in vogue at that time. There were a lot of books being written about it. There were a lot of plays, feature films came out about it. Uh, Robert De Niro did a film about child abuse. So it was kind of an in vogue thing. And I think that's kind of like where the transgender movement is right now with the notoriety of Caitlyn Jenner and jazz and, and a lot of other people that are out there. It is going to be short-lived, unfortunately. You know, it will it will go for a few years, and then something else is going to come along. And the big problem is that we really need to educate people. People have to understand what the separation is between sexuality and gender. And if we could just get the parents or the educators to see that there is a difference between those two things at an early age, it would save so much heartache in young people's lives. Well, and the thing is that we know from experience, and and I have a, my master's is in counseling and gender studies, and studies have shown people don't change their inclination, and those uh, children that begin at an early age to uh, present in a cross-gender behavior or uh, we call it atypical gender behavior where they are beginning to 
identify other, with other than the sex they were assigned. Mm-hmm. And there's been no type of therapy that has ever turned that around. And what happens is, as we know, there's something like uh, better than a 40% of actual attempted suicide rate amongst tra- transgender people because sex, our sexual identity is sort of one of the core elements of our being. I mean, it's who we are. I mean, it's right there in, like, I feel like I'm female to the marrow of my bones, even though I was assigned wrongly at birth. And I found that's the same with just about every trans person that I've met. So we live in a state and in the world is still trying to turn these people around. So when that happens, we grow up and nobody believes us. Nobody thinks, they all think that, well, we're just sort of sissies or something. What what, is, what does that make you do when you confronted that? Like you you withdrew, you turned in on yourself, you denied it. How did you deal with that? All of the above. All of the above. You just you don't have the 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 understanding or the language to identify it because you've never been taught that that's even a possibility. You know, I think the sad part is that we are assigned according to our sexuality, either male or female at birth. And it's those conscious moments in your life when you start actually remembering things and identifying with things as a child that that you become aware of it. And that's going to happen when you're maybe three or four years old. So you've already been, you know, processed as the wrong sex for so many years that the people around you don't know how to identify that there's a difference. To them, it's just it's just something strange. You know, I can remember when I was about nine years old, my mother took me to J.C. Penney's to buy yarn so she could knit my brother and I a sweater for Christmas, and she was going to let me pick out the color. And I immediately grabbed this beautiful shade of lavender. And my mother said, no, 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 you can't have that. That Your father would never allow that. And I remember holding it up to my face and saying, why, doesn't it agree with my complexion? And my mother looked down at me, and I distinctly remember her saying, yes, it does. That's the problem. <laughs> so there I was at the age of nine, a transgender problem. And that's how society looked at you, that you you were the one that was different. The school system, they didn't come and help me when I was being bullied. After all, the bullies were the normal kids. I was the abnormal one, so I deserved it. So there was there was no refuge to go to. And then I had this abusive relationship at home, so there was no one there to go to and ask questions. I had learned long ago when I was small not to ask questions because you didn't know what kind of wrath would come down on you for it. Well, for me, what happened is I kept it a secret then. Mm-hmm. It's a secret that I pushed back and pushed back into my mind until it became just an unconscious kind of desire to come out in dreams and things like that but I would never breathe to anybody that I had these feelings you know I just thought that I called it the freak factor I had this feeling that there was something wrong with me not the world that wouldn't recognize me I just thought I was wrong so I hit it and buried it and it kind of comes out. I mean, obviously it came out with you wanting to be a dancer, and it came out with you when you wanted to be act and be in theater, and so it sort of comes out. But we, I think a lot of us are late transitioners because we try to pretend that it's not so. I don't think I had a, a real strong sense of reality as a child at all. You know, my parents would send my brother and I off to the motion pictures three times on the weekend, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday afternoon. And so my whole childhood was growing up watching 
you know, things like Betty Davis, which was over the top acting. It was no sense of reality to situations. It was ultra dramatic. Um, I would be influenced by going to see a movie like The Robe and the next day I'd be home, you know, lacing up my legs with leather straps so I could look <laughs> like a Roman and dreaming that I could have a leather skirt, you know, yeah, I, like a gladiator. Yeah, I mean, those are always, you know. Roman soldiers are always my fantasy because <laughs> they always wear these little, like, knee-length, you know, skirts, you know, and I go, oh, gosh, I wish I was born back then. <laughs> I still think about designing a skirt that way. <laughs> But, but it is. I mean, we just we didn't have any kind of a point of reference to go to. You know, it just it's sad. But it's like now I'm I'm on male hormone blockers. That's like the first step of my transitioning. Um, but if that had been done when I was preteens, I wouldn't have to be dealing with electrolysis now. Yeah, pre-adolescent. You know, yeah. All of that could have been avoided if people were just aware. And that's to me. That's what we really need to do: is make people aware. It needs to be taught in the school systems. Kids need to know that they have a choice. They they need to know how to understand themselves. And it isn't being done. And that's that's really sad. Well, I think the important thing is that it has to be seen as uh, something that is natural in the human genome. It's it's. The, the number of trans people, which is about, you know, uh, I guess it's like a one in 350 or about 0.2%. Uh, and uh, that's way too many people. We're talking about maybe 700,000 trans people in the U.S. That's too many for it to be an accident or be a mutation. It, it's part of built into our genome, like, uh, like homosexuality. I mean, here we have between 5 and 10% of people that are homosexual. That's it's about the same exact number as people that are left-handed, you know, and similar to people that are red-haired, you know. I mean, it's it, there's too many of these anomalies built into our, you know, the gene, what do you call it, the genome, to see it as some kind of that's not planned into our, you know, the human species. And so a certain number of people, 0.02%, all over the world, not just now and not uh, just in this generation, but going back for since the beginning of uh, recorded history, there's been transgender people. So what I would like to see is people recognize it, that it's not something that's a deviant, but a variation. It's, it's not a deviation, but a variation. And then people will start seeing it as a positive thing. And and the question is, how do we get people to get to that point? Well, I don't know. I, I think the problem is I had to get to that point. <laughs> mm. I mean, we have to get to that point. I, I know a lot of uh, late transitioners who keep thinking that around the corner something will happen and something will click, and then they'll be... It'll work out, and they'll be happy being a man or being a woman, depending which way they're going. And uh, I kept thinking if I could just do the right thing or have the right kind of life or believe the right way, then something would click, and then everything would be okay. And, of course, it doesn't happen. The only thing that clicks, Dorothy, is our heels. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So, yeah, so the only thing that I didn't actually like myself, feel good about myself, uh, until I actually did make up my mind and began to transition, and all of a sudden everything fell in place. It's a weight off of your shoulders once you make up your mind to do that. And even at home, my husband turned to me one day, and, and, I, and I had just started, maybe it was a month into convincing myself that I could go through with this now. And he turned to me one day and he said, you're so happy all of a sudden. What's going on? <laughs> you know? But it was. It was like I felt such a relief. And I thought, God, I'm finally just being me. Yeah, you know, well, and, and I'm happy. You know? Well, my my own kids and my ex-wife all remarked that they actually all said they like me better now. <laughs> so, so it kind of gives you a sense of 
when you go about life repressing ourselves, then you're not happy. And if you're not happy, you're not a kind of a fun person to hang with. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of my situation. I just was not happy. To thy own self be true. Yeah. So we're going to take a break soon, but I'd like when we come back, let's let's talk a little bit about your life since you've made this decision, and let's talk about a little more about late transitioning and why is it changing? Why are we having early transitioners now? And so we're going to take a break. Okay, we're back with gender trouble. And we're talking with Shane Patrick, who has come all the way from Tucson and uh, is talking to us about beginning transition at the age of uh, actually 74, but now Shane is 75, and she's telling us that it's a uh, probably going to be a two-year project. She's a work in progress, as she says. And we're <laughs> talking about... Why wait to being 74 years old? Why did I wait till I was 62 years old? So why are things different now where we're hearing about, you know, young people that are transitioning, uh, people like Jazz who started, just grew up being a girl, even though she was assigned uh, male at birth. So do you have any comments about that, Shane? Well, I think for me, the the delay was, was kind of twofold. First of all, it was just ignorance, not understanding what could be done, how it had, could be done, not really being educated myself in what transitioning would be all about. Um, I'd mentioned earlier that I, I was a drag queen for a while in Seattle and entertained there. And to me, that was sort of like as far as it was going to go. I didn't know without you know, surgery, I could do anything else. But once I kind of like got into my career as an actor, it would have been career suicide to come out and try and transition. I would have lost my whole career, um, my pension, (laughs) you know, and, and it's just not accepted by so many people in the acting community that uh, it just was something I had to bury and put in the background and just not think about. Yeah, I think that's the way I did it. I didn't see a, I didn't see the way to go forward. I mean, I was married, mm-hmm. had three kids. I was very busy with work and everything, and I just thought, how can I do this? So you just push it back and push it back, but you don't, you don't see a future. Kind of okay. If I did this, then what kind of future will I have? Who's going to hire a trans person? Uh, in fact, even now we have communities like Houston who are there's a backlash and they're uh, repealing the equality laws so that for equality for homosexual and transgender people and, um, and just anybody that's different, they're Basically, they're saying, well, they're not really human, and they shouldn't have equal rights. So in the light of that, we would almost be out of our minds to think in terms of transitioning. And so, and I know a lot of trans, you know, 40, 40% or sometimes as high as 50% of people on the streets that are homeless or fit someplace in the LGBT spectrum. And mm-hmm. a great many of those people are because they present in other than the gender that or sex that they were assigned. Well, you know, you don't just wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to become a woman. You know, it's a very painful decision to come to because it doesn't just involve you. It involves everyone around you. You know, how do you tell your siblings? How do you tell your your family? How do you tell your friends? How many friends are you going to lose because of it? How honest can you be? I mean, I, I have to be honest about two weeks ago was the first time that I actually got caught in my little community going from my garage out to my car dressed as a woman and my neighbor lady drove in and I panicked. Because I didn't know what that was going to mean, not just to me, but what was it going to mean to my husband? 
what what kind of re- repercussions were we going to get within our little community of 96 homes? And so far, nothing has been said. Well, I, but I know that even though I'm at the point where I know I must do this for me, I must end my life being who I am, I still panicked. Yeah, it's and a hard thing to do. It, it's a very difficult and, decision. And let me congratulate you. And I want to just tell everybody. <laughs> I know this is Shane's first day to actually be out. I mean, Shane got up, dressed as the woman that she is, and drove all the way from Tucson here, and has walked around town dressed as Shane. And now, uh, and she's on the radio talking with us. And I just find that amazing and and I'm very pleased and and very proud of her so uh and very exciting because i remember my first day here and and uh we used to have a program called the morning show with gwen and laurie and first time i went out dressed i went out of my apartment i walked downtown i went into the javelina coffee house got a cup of coffee and walked up to the studio and Went on the morning show with Gwen and Lori and talked about Transgender 101. Deja vu, huh? <laughs> Maybe it's something about Silver City, you know. Silver City is very accepting. We can all shine here. I think so, yes. It's, well, you know, I, I was coming from a very strong... Uh, religious uh, community and they all turned their backs but when I came downtown here in our main street here in town Bullard Street you know I was actually uh, embraced by the community and Gwen and Lori were very supportive and accepting and 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 it's kind of sad we don't have that show because I always thought it was fun so anyway it's a brave thing to do when you first step out. So tell me, is it liberating? It is. It is. Uh, you know, and as I drove here this morning, I, I had a few panic moments, you know. Um, but I just kept telling myself that this is really a good place to start. This is a place where I'm not known. Let's just see how well I pass. Let's see what happens. Are there going to be any adverse reactions or not? And it's so far absolutely nothing. In fact, uh, I walked in to get coffee at the coffee house down the street, and then the girl said, oh, are you going to be on the radio today? <laughs> I had talked to Brooke about <laughs> but it is a small town, and it's, it's supporting, yeah. Yeah, so coming out here, it was embraced, and it was a great feeling. And I found it's easier to be out of the closet than it is to be in the closet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's easier to say, okay, hey, this is me, get over it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing, is that it's it's not even the fact that you're a transition or a transgender. It's you're being you. You're being who you are. It's about time. Yeah, that's how I feel. I I use the term. uh, I didn't transition from male to female or man to woman because I feel I was always female. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I was born female. I think my brain always thought I was female. I think I tried to pretend that wasn't so. But I think I just transitioned from not me to me. And I kind of look at it like I spent, you know, what, 50 years of my life trying to be a man. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life trying to be a woman. I just want to be me. And, of course, me tends to be rather femme in a lot of ways. (laughs) Uh, But it's naturally me. You know, I didn't have to take walking lessons and sitting lessons and how to hold yourself. I never did any of that. I just gave up trying to be a guy and everything fell in place. (laughs) I find that the more I get into transitioning, the more my femininity is coming back and it feels like an old friend is here again. Right. That's how it felt with me. Yeah. It's a a relief because I was always conscious of 
was I standing right? Was I sitting right? Did I look like a guy? Is, is anybody going to notice that? You know, and then when it started getting close, I used to call it leaking gender, where, you know, you st- all of a sudden you find yourself not behaving right, like you're giggling and carrying on and everything, and you go, oops, I'm not supposed to be that way. <laughs> we only have a few minutes left, Shane, and is there anything else you'd like? Anything like parting shots, so to speak? Oh, just please, everybody out there, educate yourselves. You know, read a book, watch a show, understand what it is. Listen to gender trouble. Yes, listen to gender (laughs) trouble. (laughs) Because it's only going to start if we change our thinking, and then we can change the world. Right. And, and of course, these shows are really helpful that are on now. And, uh, oh, you know, I wanted to go back to something I wanted to bring up. Uh, You mentioned that you're on... uh, testosterone blockers Mm -hmm. you also mentioned that people transition you know know that who they are as early as four years old and for a lot of the young transitioners they get puberty blockers so that they don't go through the change and an interesting thing is that there's a lot of doctors that don't want to give them to young transgender kids they say well it's too early for them to they don't they might change their mind but if they get a child that has, you know, premature adolescence, and, and there's a name for that, and I always forget it. So if they're, then they're given puberty blockers right away mm-hmm. because they're not being transgender. They're just going to just develop too early, so they, they give them puberty blockers. But when it comes to transgender people, instead of giving puberty blockers, they talk about how it might not be good for them, it might not be healthy, you know, we better be careful. And it's really transphobia. It's really hoping against hope that somehow the child will change their mind and not be trans. And I know that just reflects how I always felt, hoping against hope somehow down the road I won't be trans, but it never goes away, and so we make peace with it. But that's what I would like to see for, you know, the young trans people. Give them a chance. Puberty blockers, there's never been any known side effects. And when they turn 18 or whatever, they could decide or, you know, they'll know by then. And then they could go ahead and take the hormones that are the uh, right hormones for the um, sex and gender that they identify with. Right, yeah. Good point. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, I think education is the big one, and I think that's what stymied all of us. We mm-hmm. didn't know anything about uh, what was going on. I didn't know what was going on with me. So thank you for being here. Well, I want to thank you for having me, you know. You both have been so wonderful. All three of you. We have a technician here doing all the hard work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kyle doesn't say anything, but everybody in town knows Kyle. <laughs> and, uh, He's got the great smile, doesn't he? And we're winding down, and I think it's uh, one more, uh, what do you call it, hour of gender trouble. <laughs> <laughs>